All right, so this is our uh, second class on the Book of Lamentations. And I, I put up as an opening quotation uh, an excerpt from uh, the sermons of David Dixon on Lamentations. So uh, David Dixon was a 17th century uh, Scottish pastor and uh, theologian, very prominent in the Covenanter movement in Scotland. And uh, his sermons on Lamentations were only within the last few years discovered in manuscript form. Uh, a hearer had taken them down by hand, and they were published for the first time a couple of years ago. Uh, one reason I put this up is that uh, it's helpful to get a perspective out of our own time on what it looks like to think about Lamentations, what sort of applications are made. And um, in this case, uh, so Kirk means church, although be it these Kirks, he's re referring to the churches on the European continent who were suffering uh, severely in a time of uh, warfare. So in particular in, in Heidelberg and in La Rochelle, France, um, they were uh, in very severe conditions and they asked uh, Scotland for contributions uh, it is kind of funny, he says, out of our poor country. Apparently at that time, Scotland was virtually bankrupt. So, you know, he's saying, things must be bad if they're coming to us for help. And um, what he, the way he ap applies that situation in terms of the Book of Lamentations is really interesting. He says, we are like drunken men lying in the end of a house that is burning, and the burnt timber is falling, yet they lie still and stir not, because the fire has not overtaken them. So now when the other end of Christ's kirk is burnt, and a little part of it is standing, so referring to the sufferings on the continent, yet we neither mourn for it nor are afraid. Therefore it portends a fearful desolation and utter downfall to come upon us, for neither our forewarnings nor these strokes are laid to heart. Again, it's not our time, that's not the situation we're in, but it is a a good question for us to ask when we read a book like Lamentations, do we take it to heart? Do we think about uh, not only our own situation, but also uh, suffering brothers and sisters? And do we consider the, the seriousness of the, the implied warning as well as the, uh, the gracious offer that the book contains? So uh, with that uh, little bit of introduction, I'd like to read uh, from Lamentations 1. Last week I read uh, 1 through uh, 12, I think I'll back up and read, so there's a little overlap, I'll read 11 through 22 of chapter 1. Um, All her people sigh, they seek bread, they have given their valuables for food to restore life. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am scorned. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought upon me which the Lord has inflicted in the day of his fierce anger. From above he has sent fire into my bones, and it overpowered them. He has spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all the day. The yoke of my transgressions was bound. They were woven together by his hands and thrust upon my neck. He made my strength fail. The Lord delivered me into the hands of those whom I am not able to withstand. The Lord has trampled underfoot all my mighty men in my midst. He has called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord trampled as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eye, my eye overflows with water. 
because the Comforter, who should restore my life, is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. Zion spreads out her hands, but no one comforts her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that those around him become his adversaries. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. The Lord is righteous, for I rebelled against his commandment. Hear now, all peoples, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders breathed their last in the city while they sought food to restore their life. See, O Lord, that I am in distress. My soul is troubled. My heart is overturned within me, for I've been very rebellious. Outside the sword bereaves, at home it is like death. They have heard that I sigh, but no one comforts me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. Bring on the day you have announced that they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you and do to them as you have done to me for all my transgressions. For my sighs are many and my heart is faint. So last time we had uh, what I called an invitation to the book of Lamentations, which I felt was necessary because of the the sobering uh, nature of the book and uh, the, uh, the context in which we live. And what I wanted to do today is uh, give an uh, introduction to the book. And uh, at first, I was hopeful that we could actually have some time to look at chapter one. Uh, we'll see how far it goes. Uh, yes, I'm making a fine distinction between an invitation and an introduction. Uh, the invitation was to set it in its larger context in terms of our connections with the book through the people of Israel, our fathers, and uh, through the fall, and especially uh, at the end through Christ. But uh, in some sense, I don't think I need to apologize uh, for introducing the book because it is a, it is a, I think for many of us kind of a, it's a foreign world uh, to see this sort of dirge uh, chapter after chapter. Um, it's also not a book we're probably terribly familiar with. Um, and what I want to do is uh, give some of the background that will help you to read the book on your own. So one thing I've realized as I've studied it more and more is that there's so much in here. It's so rich that there's no way I can really cover it all. But I thought I might be able to help you or we might learn together how to read the book in a profitable way. So that's uh, part of what I want to do today. And as I said, we'll see if we actually get uh, get to look at the book uh, in any detail. So, uh, yeah. So my usual meager slide. So we have something of an outline today, at least. Uh, so uh, first, I want to talk about uh, the author of the book, and then uh, we'll turn to uh, the literary form. So the uh, author of the book uh, traditionally has been uh, taken to be uh, Jeremiah. It's clear if you read the book that this is an eyewitness of what's going on. This isn't someone uh, making it up or recollecting uh, from the distant past or from stories heard. Um, The attribution to Jeremiah is an old uh, Jewish tradition. It's in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, 200 BC. And uh, I think there's really no reason to question that. So I'll typically refer to the author as Jeremiah. It's not a matter of, you know, orthodoxy. The, the, The author is not named, but I think 
uh, there's a pretty clear connection. And having said that, I, I want you to think about uh, what you know about the book of Jeremiah, because uh, Jeremiah warned of these things that were coming on the people. And so if you think about Jeremiah, you may think, oh, this is exactly what he said would happen. And so he's somehow just you know, rubbing it in. But Jeremiah had a, a much more, shall we say, a nuanced uh, approach to his ministry. And uh, personally, maybe in private, uh, he was uh, terribly grieved for what was happening and what he anticipated happening. So uh, Jeremiah 8, 21 through 9, 2. For the hurt of the daughter of my people I am hurt. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the death of the daughter of my people? Oh, that my head were watered, my eyes were fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers, that I might leave my people and go with them. They are all adulterers, Okay, so there's Jeremiah expressing his grief. Uh, Sounds actually a lot like verse 16 uh, that I just read in Lamentations 1. My eye overflows with water. Uh, Jeremiah was uh, the one who was assigned to really be a prophet of doom in some ways, warning them of what would come. Uh, And yet uh, he elsewhere says, yet I I weep in secret for, for my people. Uh, I included that last verse in the reading. Uh, he felt that way about them, but he also felt like I'd like just to get away from them. So <laughs> the last verse in Jeremiah 9-2, the, uh, they were after him, and uh, there were times when he, he thought it would be better to be apart from them. Now, with that, uh, with that background, uh, I think it's, unless you have any questions about the authorship, I think it's clear that uh, Jeremiah is a fit witness to this, Jeremiah, like the book of Lamentations, also pointed to hope for the nation. He's told to write a book of hope, uh, uh, Jeremiah 30 and following. And so there's no no reason why um, anything that he wrote or or said should be uh, considered uh, impossible for the author of Lamentations. So I want to turn next to the, uh, is that a question? Yes. Yes, right. So he prophesied um, for some time before, from the time of Josiah, where there was a reformation until uh, the worst kings came along. And through the captivity, he was forced to go into Egypt uh, after the destruction of Babylon. Uh, He told them this was a bad idea, and they grabbed him and took him anyway. So he suffered through this. He saw the desolation. That's right. Yeah, thanks for uh, pointing that out. Yeah. Yes, Dave. Are there any other uh, Bible ideas as to who else may have written this book? No. I mean, uh, people always suggest different things, but there's no no prominent, like Ezekiel was already in Babylon. There's no prominent figure uh, that you could point to uh, who could have written this. Okay, so I'd like to turn next to the uh, literary form. So, you know, we made this point whenever we were studying uh, the means of grace that, you know, some people like to study the Bible because they like to study literature, but they don't actually apply it to themselves. I want to be careful not to do that. But uh, it is, I think, 
important for us to see the way in which God communicated this uh, book of the Bible to us. And uh, I think it will help us in understanding, even when there are some things that don't come through in the English translation, just to be aware of. Uh, So the the book of Lamentations uh, comes in five chapters in our Bibles, and those actually correspond to five poems. So that, in that sense, the chapter division follows closely the literary division. There are five uh, poems in the book. And just in terms of the literature, it's, uh, I mean, it's an absolutely amazing composition. So the, a writer in the ninth century, uh, in comparing this to the Song of Songs, uh, called this the Lamentation of Lamentations. So you're probably aware with the, the Hebrew way of uh, intensifying Song of Songs, Holy of Holies, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. They're saying those are in a class by themselves, right? That's the way, that's what Song of Songs means. So to say this is the lamentation of lamentations is to say this, this is the lamentation which is uh, beyond any other lamentation. And that's, of course, partly for its uh, literary uh, style, which we'll talk about, but especially for its spiritual value for those who uh, can benefit from the use of lamentation. And part of the reason I'm teaching this class is because I think we all can and we all should uh, heed uh, David Dixon's uh, charge to to think about uh, and to consider not only our circumstances, but those of others. Okay, so we're going to go through, I hope fairly quickly, some of these uh, literary matters. um, And um, the first is that the uh, Book of Lamentations has an acrostic structure. So remember acrostic, uh, probably Psalm 119 is our most familiar of that, where uh, Psalm 119 is, right, the number of verses is a multiple of 22, right? So it's uh, eight verses on uh, first letter of the, oh, beginning with the, sorry, each, each verse begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, then the second letter, and so on. So the Book of Lamentations is structured in a similar way. Uh, obviously, this doesn't come through in our uh, English Bibles, so I uh, put up here a translation that does produce this. This is not a translation I recommend. I'm only putting it up here. It's a, a Knox. Uh, he's a Roman Catholic, uh, actually, but actually throughout the Bible, when there are acrostics, he tries to work them in. Too. So this. So you might look at uh, Lamentations chapter two and compare with. Uh, with what uh, Knox has there. So right, uh, what he's doing, so the dot, dot, dot is the rest of the first verse, the dot, dot, dot is the rest of the second verse. So in Lamentations 2, each verse of our English Bibles in the original begins with the succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And uh, that's the same way for chapter 1. It's the same way in chapter 4, although chapter 4 is is a little shorter uh, in the sense that there are fewer lines for each verse. And then chapter in chapter 5, the acrostic pattern is not present at all. So does that make sense for chapter 2? So you compare with your Bibles, uh, verse 1, Aleph, but here it's A, B, C, and so forth. And then chapter 3, uh, the pattern is uh, really intensified. So that is, there are uh, three verses for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So in uh, ask... Uh, so, ah, what straits have I not known? Ask for light and always upon me. Those are the first three letters in the first three verses in Lamentations chapter three. So in our uh, versification, it has 66 verses, but it's actually not longer than chapter one or chapter two. It's just that 
to help us see the structure, I guess, uh, when they were dividing the chapters into verses. Uh, they gave uh, one verse for each of the letters of the alphabet. So that suggests that there's a, a, a yeah, that the chapter three is really central to the book, and we'll come back to that, uh, Lord willing, at some point. But it's a, an intensive acrostic structure, especially for chapter three. Now, an obvious question is, why is this here? Why Lamentations in acrostic form? The short answer is that there's no, no stated explanation anywhere in the Bible, but uh, there are three, there are lots of suggestions, but there are three that I'll uh, mention to you that I think are, uh, are relevant. The first is that this would be an aid in memorization. Uh, you, you especially, you know, think about chapter one, you know, first letter, first verse A, or Aleph, uh, first letter of second, second verse, uh, Beth, or B, and so forth. Uh, the second, which I think is uh, really helpful for thinking about the book, is for the sense of completeness. And that comes through in the, when we say in English, you know, this is the A to Z of something. So if you were, this is the A to Z of lamentation. This is the A to Z of grief over what has happened to our beloved city of Jerusalem. And uh, we'll see in a quote later on, David Dixon uh, reinforces that idea. Apparently that goes back uh, long in Jewish tradition for understanding this. And that, that helps us to think about this as a lamentation of lamentations. Here is, here is an outpouring of grief, which as far as possible is covering, uh, covering the things that, um, that would, we would need to know in terms of lamenting for the state of, of Jerusalem. And the third is, uh, I think, also important, particularly in the context of uh, lamentations, right? The, the completeness you can understand for Psalm 119, right? This is a meditation on, on God's word that goes from A to Z in 176 verses. Um, but I think especially this third uh, suggestion for the value of the acrostic is this helps, uh, helps the writer to organize his expression of grief. So, uh, I think it was uh, in a sermon by Jonathan Haney on uh, Psalm 88, where he talked about, you know, in depression, uh, it's really hard to sort of think through things logically, and Psalm 88 doesn't have sort of a logical structure. It keeps coming back to the same things. And you can imagine uh, Jeremiah seeing the city and what's uh, gone before him, and uh, somehow the acrostic structure is, is forcing him to organize the grief in a way that keeps moving forward. Doesn't just get stuck at one point, but keeps moving forward. Now that's not to say there's a, no repetition and uh, there's like a perfect logical flow. But I think that's a, a helpful way also to think about the value of the acrostic, that this is so overwhelming that this structure uh, helps, uh, helps to keep, keep the thought moving uh, toward a, a hopeful uh, point, especially in chapter three. So uh, that's all I'm going to say about uh, acrostic structure of the book. Questions? Dave? One of the distinct advantages of the uh, original readers had uh, in that acrostic is being able to memorize it a little easier and to recognize that pattern. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's 
you know, I realize I'm talking about this, but it's not in your Bible. Uh, this is one of the things sort of to keep in mind as you read, but it certainly was an advantage uh, that they would have had. Um, yeah, so some of the rest of what I'm going to talk about, you also can't see in translation very well, but um, I think it still has uh, some value. Okay, so let, let's talk uh, next about... Um, okay, so I'm going to try to go quickly over this. This is not a class in literature, and I'm certainly not a person to teach on poetry, although I know someone like that. Um, let's talk about uh, meter. So uh, just to step back a little bit, uh, I'm sure you're aware of the fact that Hebrew poetry, if you wanted to characterize Hebrew poetry, it would be parallelism of thought. So uh, you'll have one line that says something and the second line that echoes it. So if you look at Lamentations chapter 1, verse 2, which I didn't read, but uh, uh she weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Okay, so there's the second part of that uh, line is really repeating the first thought, but in, a, in new words, but uh, in a parallel way. So if you like, that is the characteristic of Hebrew poetry. It's parallelism. And we can be thankful for that because providentially that is easy to translate. So that, that comes through in translations well. Uh, Hebrew poetry does not use rhyme. Uh, Again, we can be thankful for that. Uh, so our, those who put together our Psalter found their own ways of making things rhyme. But it is true that Hebrew poetry has a metrical structure. Okay, it's not like the metrical structure uh, that you may be familiar with. I'm not going to give you any limericks, but you know that sort of da 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 that sort of thing, where you have stressed and unstressed syllables. Uh, Hebrew poetry has stressed and unstressed words. And a bunch of unstressed words might sort of count together as a stressed word. So it's, it's kind of a complicated thing. But um, that is a typical uh, sort of thing that you can find in Hebrew poetry. It doesn't show up in translation very well because Hebrew poetry, the Hebrew language takes very few words to say what we say in many words in Western languages. So that's going to complicate my illustrating the next point. But just as a, a general uh, rule, the stress on the first half of a line is the same as the, the number of stresses in the first half of a line is the name of, same as the number of stresses in the second. So it might be a 3-3. Three, three. might have three stressed words in the first half of the line and three stressed words in the second half of the line. Okay. So what's different about Lamentations is that it uses this meter, you might see it's spelled with a Q or with a K. Um, and that's the Hebrew word for lament. Um, and that meter is different in that the second half of the line is shorter than the first half. And that uh, has an important effect, but maybe, maybe to illustrate that, let me put up... Oh, it's there. Okay, sorry. I couldn't remember how I put my slides together. So this is, again, this is not from... Um, this, this is from a commentary, uh, which provided a translation to illustrate this. So this is, you might look in your Bibles in uh, chapter 1, verse 5. So it's C because there, there are three, uh, three, yeah, there are pairs of lines here that we're talking about. Um, but look at 5C and 6A. So her children were driven as prisoners before the enemy. So right, the second half of the line is much shorter than the first. And there is departed from Zion all her splendor. 
So that's a characteristic uh, way in which the meter goes in the Book of Lamentations. It's not universal. There are exceptions. But uh, people have pointed out that this is fitting for a lament. It, it gives you like this sort of uh, moaning sense to the verse. You know, you say this thing and then all you can say is like just a couple of more uh, stressed words. Uh, some people have also described as sort of a limping uh, meter. So that's uh, something which, again, is hard to see in the English translations because we typically take uh, more words. Um, some versions are better than others in presenting that. But that meter is there, again, to underline the nature of the, the grief and the lament that's being put forth. Any questions about that? Yes. There's a distinct advantage in Hebrew poetry being written in this fashion, and that it allows the same communication to come down to us in a different language in a different time. And had it relied on modern techniques of meters and syllables, it would have been completely and utterly lost. Yeah, iambic pentameter, you know, trying to get from one language to another, that would be a hopeless task. Right. This preserves. Yeah, right. Another advantage of the Hebrew parallelism, uh, one of the things I've done in scripture in general is it tends to repeat certain things right. or certain stories. You know, get the gospel four times, you get uh, yeah. stories, but the two or three different ways, and even within lines, you get repetition of the idea so that things that get mixed with. Right. Yeah. Right. And the parallel part in the poetry may sort of repeat the same idea like the one we looked at, or it may uh, modify in some way, give another um, accent on the thought. Yeah, that's right. Okay. The third thing. Okay. This is a, a real word in English in poetry. I asked Evelyn about it. She said, oh, yeah. Okay. So, enjambment. Okay. And this is something you can find in translations. And it, it is, uh, this is where I started to realize there is a lot in this book that unless you sort of read it carefully, you're going to miss. So in, enjambment, uh, in any kind of poetry is uh, defined this way. So let me give the contrasting idea. So typically in, um, poetry, the first half of the line would have sort of a complete unit of thought and the second half would have then its own complete unit of thought. So uh, you, can, you can see that in most of the way the psalms are written, that's the case. So enjambment means that the first half of the line sort of runs over to the second half of the line. Uh, enjambment is from a French word which means dangling. It's too bad because it sounds like it's the opposite, like if it's enjammed it must be stopped. But no, it, it means it runs over to the second half. <clears throat> and that, <clears throat> excuse me, that creates this idea of a this sort of forward movement again. You haven't heard everything you should hear in the first line, so you want to anticipate what's going to happen. And the way it's used in Lamentations and in poetry in general is quite diverse. It can have various purposes. But I want you to uh, turn with me to two, uh, chapter 2, verse 22. Um, this is the A part of the verse. 
Okay. You see it's in jammed. Uh, you have invited as to a feast day. Okay, so that doesn't really complete the thought. What What is going on? Then the second part, the terrors that surround me. Okay, so this is, this is an example of the sort of reversal that comes in enchantment, right? You've invited us to a feast day. So we're going to have a good time, right? Whom did God invite? The terrors that surround me, right? And you can see this uh, again and again in the, uh, in the book of Lamentations, this, this flow of thought that leads you to anticipate one thing, but Jeremiah wants you to know that he's lamenting. And so he invites you in only to tell you really um, how terrifying it really is. If you want a similar idea, go back to verse 7 of chapter 2, the last part of it, <coughs> the C part. Jeremiah 2, 7, they have made a noise in the house of the Lord as on the day of a set feast. He's talking about the invaders, the conquerors, the Babylonians who destroyed, they plundered and, and uh, then destroyed the temple. And, you know, it was like the occasion when everyone's there at church and we're all having a good time and celebrating. Only they're making a noise in the house of the Lord so they can destroy it. So this, this, as I said, is something that, uh, you know, the punctuation may or may not reflect it, but the, whether there's something in the second half that somehow completes the thought of the first is fairly easy to tell. And this, uh, this is especially, I think, appropriate for the, uh, the subject of the Book of Lamentations. Let me just make a, a comment on this particular idea. If, if you step back and think about it, the whole Book of Lamentations is about reversal, Right, the, the first, the first verse, you know, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. Okay, so we had a flourishing city, we had a flourishing society, we had the temple of God among us, a clear evidence of his presence, and it's all gone. And that, the writer, uh, Jeremiah, takes that up in different ways. And one of the themes that uh, one commentator pointed out, out is the theme of the anti-pilgrim. <clears throat> so, you know, Jerusalem is used to people coming to the feast, right? They flock in there, they come in, they make a great noise, it's a great celebration. But again and again, Jeremiah compares the conquerors to pilgrims. So they're anti-pilgrims. They're there to destroy. They're not there to celebrate. And that, that again, heightens the sense of, of, of mourning, of reversal, and of destruction. And you can see that in the uh, chapter two, the references from chapter two that we read. Okay. Now you have a word to impress people with. Any questions about enjambment? <laughs> okay. So let me talk a little bit uh, about the speakers and uh, a little bit about the overall structure of the book. So I don't want to talk about the speakers through the whole book, but just in chapters one and two, you may have noticed when I've read from chapter one and two, there are really uh, two voices you hear. There's the, the narrator, for lack of a better word, uh, Jeremiah speaking, how lonely sits the city. But then at some point, um, the daughter of Jerusalem speaks. And that's especially, you can see that in the last part of chapter one. And at various times, they actually that's true in one and two. Sometimes they interrupt each other. Sometimes one will speak to the other. Uh, so he's not really a narrator in that, uh, maybe in the strict uh, sense. But the 
the presence of and the speech of the daughter of Jerusalem is especially, I think, significant, giving voice to the suffering. Jeremiah is, as it were, an observer, but then he gives uh, the one who's actually suffering the words to speak. Um, some contemporary commentators refer to this woman as Lady Zion, which is, I think, a helpful, it's easier to say than daughter of Jerusalem, and that's that's the sense of daughter of Jerusalem, not not that she was born from Jerusalem, but that she's this, this honored person in Jerusalem. So calling her Lady Zion uh, makes sense. And then uh, let me talk just a little bit about the overall structure of the book. So I've already mentioned that chapter three is central, at least in terms of the uh, acrostic. It's also central in the sense that the hope that seems so uh, empty, uh, so gone in chapters one and two, is evident there. Chapter three, you remember from last time, uh, starts with this uh, speaker, I am the man who have seen the rod of affliction. And uh, I argued then uh, that it most is appropriately understood as the Messiah. And in connection with that, the Messiah and his sufferings, we have that hope, great is thy faithfulness, the famous, famous part of Lamentations. So uh, at the center of the book, in the midst of all this suffering, is the great hope. And yet I, I want to make another point about this. This is, I hope I don't insult anyone, but this is not like a Disney movie where, you know, everyone's happy after you have this song in the middle. Chapters four and five are very dark. They're still pouring out grief to God. And I want to come back to that when we look at the theological background. So Jeremiah respects our grief. Jeremiah understands that having the hope of the Messiah doesn't erase the misery that you're going through. He continues to give voice to that and expresses the, uh, the serious condition that the people are in. In fact, some people have said the whole book is in this kina meter, like the last two parts of the book are this sort of limping, moaning conclusion after the first uh, three chapters. Uh, respecting the, the trials that the nation has gone through. Okay, so that didn't go as fast, and I was right. I'm probably not going to get to chapter one. But let me pause and see if you have any questions on uh, the literary uh, background. Is it the embandment? Uh-huh. And apparently, you know, from enjam, from French enjamber, just dry over... Uh, jam being laid. Okay. Yep. Thank you. All right. In the last part, I want to look at the uh, background in the Old Testament and some uh, of the theological aspects of the book to highlight. So I mentioned some of this before in connection uh, with the uh, the law, and I want to bring that up again. So. I mentioned before Leviticus uh, 26 and Deuteronomy 28, so books in the Pentateuch which are in the context of the covenant and there give the promises of blessings for obedience and then the warnings of curses for disobedience. So that's especially important in the book of Lamentations because the whole context of Lamentations is the violation of the covenant. Okay, that it's not maybe explicit, but it is uh, It is there because of all the allusions to those uh, curses in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and we'll see one of them. Uh, but 
also because of the sense that God is the one who has done this. Okay? So you think about a, a secular writing, you talk about a city that's destroyed, uh, you know, who would you blame? Will you invade, blame the invading army? You might blame, you know, blame the incompetence of your leadership that didn't defend you. Um, Jeremiah again and again says, the Lord has done this. And I tried to emphasize that in the reading. Uh, it is emphasized in the, in the reading even in chapter one. And that's because of this uh, violation of the covenant, which you can read about in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, and um, you can read about in the book of Jeremiah. But I just want to give uh, one example of that. So uh, from Deuteronomy 28, verses 13 and 44. 28. Is that what I gave you? Yeah, that's what you gave me. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. The resident alien among you will rise higher and higher above you while you sink lower and lower. He will run to you, but you won't run to him. He will be the head and you will be the tail. Okay, so that, that phrase, uh, the head and the tail, it may be familiar to you from um, reading the Old Testament. Uh, so the book of Lamentations picks up that language in chapter 1, uh, verse 5. The New King James Version unfortunately obscures it. I think the ESV has the word head, but uh, Lamentations 1, 5. Her adversaries have become the master or head, and her enemies prosper. So the word is the same in the Hebrew, and that's it's the same idea of the, the head, the one who's uh, in supremacy, or the one who's prospering, and, and they are subject to them. That's just uh, one example of how Jeremiah draws on the Old Testament background. But secondly, I want to talk about uh, the background in the book of um, Isaiah. So, yeah, I realize I didn't forward this slide here. Here we go. Sorry. Um, and that's uh, connected especially with uh, chapter 3, but I think it's helpful for understanding the whole book. So Isaiah 40 through 66, so the last part of the book of Isaiah, you know, starts comfort ye my people. Uh, looks forward to the time of uh, the destruction of the city and to the time of exile. And it gives hope. Uh, it's a really remarkable thing that God ahead of time prepared this whole section of scripture to help those who would be going through the uh, time of suffering. Uh, one of the uh, Jewish writings says, all the severe prophecies that Jeremiah prophesied against Israel were anticipated and healed by Isaiah. Okay. Isaiah lived some hundred years before this happened, and yet the prophecy points forward to the hope of deliverance. And here's especially the important thing for the book of Lamentations. That hope is centered in a suffering servant. So that language of the suffering servant is especially familiar from uh, Isaiah 53, but uh, throughout the last part of Isaiah, there are references again and again to my servant, the one who will deliver my people. 
And yet if you read that, it's kind of confusing sometimes because along with that servant is also mentioned a sort of a useless servant. So Isaiah 42 begins you know, with reference to my servant who's the Messiah. And then in chapter 42, verse 19, it refers, it says, who is blind but my servant? But he's not talking about the Messiah. He's making this identification of the head with the body. So sometimes in speaking of the servant, he's thinking of the one whom the servant is uh, representing and taking on. And that's helpful because when we read in the book of Lamentations about suffering, we should realize that Christ is always suffering with his people as the head uh, suffers with the body. Uh, one example of the, the sort of connection that's made in the New Testament, not with suffering, but with the ministry of the gospel, is in Acts uh, 13, verse 47. Okay, so there's uh, Paul preaching in Antioch. This is the Antioch in Syria, not in uh, in, uh, in Asia Minor. Um, and at the end of the sermon, he says, well, at the end of the interaction in the synagogue, they, you know, they didn't really want to hear what he had to say. And he said, well, we'll take the gospel to the Gentiles. And he says, for this is our mission. And that is that they should be a light to the Gentiles. Well, if you go back to the reference, it's in Isaiah 49, verse 6. It's addressed to the servant. Right. So is is Paul taking it out of context? Could they have said, no, that was for the Messiah. That wasn't for you. Well, that's that's a very common identification. What what was the charge that was given to the servant is also uh, given to the head, to his bo- to to his uh, body, to the church for their work. And in the same way, in uh, the book of Lamentations, you know, we might read chapter one and verse 12. Is there any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought on me? I'd say, well, the sorrow that Jerusalem suffered was severe. But whose sorrow was even more severe than that? Whose suffering was even more severe? Well, that was Christ. And and so that sort of connection that you can make is a very natural one. That's really what the Bible teaches us to do. The last part, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the the theological uh, background that uh, that's helpful in the book. And I put up, this is another quotation from David Dixon. Uh, he uses this idea of the, the ABCs. Uh, this is at the beginning of chapter two. So he has already gone through one chapter. And he says, now in this chapter, he begins another ABC. So this idea of uh, completeness uh, he brings out. But I, I want to especially focus on the last part of what he says. He says, uh, he lays out, laments over again in a more heavy manner and lays out the desolation of the Kirk, that is the church, and commonwealth in such affectious speeches as his words may be seen to be indicted or inspired by God's spirit. For where should the wit of man find out words to express such sorrow as is set down here? It's a remarkable mark of inspiration. That is, that... Jeremiah could express so fully the grief of the people. It had to be by the inspiration of the Spirit. It's something worth thinking about. You read in Romans 8 about how uh, we're unable to pray, but the Spirit uh, groans, the Spirit uh, intercedes for us. And although I think it's not exactly the same thing that uh, David Dixon is saying here, I think when we read a book like this, we shouldn't just think of, of this as, 
Jeremiah was all worked up about this. He was rightly sad over his city. The Spirit gave him the words to express this lament. This is not something God is distant from. This is God knowing that Jeremiah could not fully express the grief. And so we have an inspired record of what they suffered. I want to just cover a couple of other uh, ways in which a proper understanding of who God is is helps us understand the book. Uh, so I'm going to go through these pretty quickly. Chapter 1, verse 18. The Lord is righteous, for I rebelled against his commandment. This is the admission that I mentioned before, that all this came upon them because of God. And he's saying this is because of the righteousness of God. But also in chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, so here's the, where the hope is uh, brought in. Though the Lord's mercy, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. So there's understanding who God is in having hope. God is merciful and God is faithful to his covenant. But I want to close with one other because I think this encourages us to think about who God is in a different way in terms of the application of the book. And that's in chapter 5, in verse uh, 19, right before verse 19, so the paragraph right above that, uh, he's been talking about the desolation of Mount Zion. There are foxes walking about it, right? This place is just a complete ruin. And notice what he says, You, O Lord, remain forever, in verse 19. You're thrown from generation to generation. So he's comforted in the truth that God will not forget his covenant. Though he sees desolation, he remembers that God rules, God doesn't change, God is eternal. But again, our temptation may be to say, okay, that's where he stops. But notice what that does in verse 20. Why do you forget us forever and forsake us for so long a time? We are not told that God remains forever and uh, is sovereign so that we can shut up in our grief. We're told that that's all the more reason to call God, to remember, God, you can't forget us forever, can you? You can't forsake us for so long a time because of who you are. And so the Spirit hands us these words, these truths about who God is, not to stop our expression of grief, but to turn it into something productive, that we would cry out to God, that we would call on him, and say, this is who you are, will you then not act on our behalf? So the application of the theology of lamentations is a little more subtle than just saying, okay, we can be happy because God is eternal, so we'll just make it through this. Instead, it points us to looking to God, to knowing God and serving him. Okay, not only did I not have enough time for chapter one, I didn't have enough time for what I wrote. So uh, I ran over. Any any comments or questions, thoughts about that last part? Okay. Next time we meet for this class, uh, we'll get to, get to chapter one, Lord willing, and uh, see see how these how this background uh, helps us to understand the book. Well, let's uh, close in prayer.